more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. But there's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. You're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Joseph Valencia. And I'm Jenna Fryer. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students and postdoctoral fellows in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student or a postdoc at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and link to our Twitter and podcast pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and today we are very excited to be joined by Christopher Cousins, a fourth-year PhD student in the Department of Fisheries and Wildlife. Welcome, Chris. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. So why don't we get right into it. Um, Can you give us a pitch about kind of what you're here at Oregon State to do? Yeah, sure. Um, Well, I work with torrent salamanders, which are a family endemic to the Pacific Northwest. They're found nowhere else uh, in California, Oregon, and Washington. Um, And I think most of my graduate research work is aimed around improving uh, the ability to do like effective conservation and management on the species. Uh, but kind of pulling a step back, not just on the species, but on the ecosystems in which they live. And those are headwater streams uh, in the Pacific Northwest. So headwater, um, for those of us who aren't familiar with the term, can we talk about what that is? Yeah, absolutely. So headwater streams are, you know, when you think about a stream system, these are the segments that are all the way up in the mountains where the source of water that then flows all downstream is, it's, it's, so <clears throat> there tend to be, somewhat high elevation um, and kind of characterized by a lot smaller flows than what you'd be expected, you know, to see otherwise. Uh, When I tell a lot of people that I do stream work, I think a lot of what they think of is maybe the Mackenzie or even some of the smaller Mm -hmm. tributaries of the Willamette or something like that. And a lot of the streams that I work in, you know, have maximum deaths of uh, one to two feet, Um, you know, so we're talking about pretty like low flow, uh, but very cold and very steep and highly oxygenated streams. Interesting. So a, a different environment than what you would normally think of for like a, a larger body of water, like a river. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, a lot of a lot of these streams are in somewhat hard to get to places. So uh, one of the cool parts of my research is being able to see areas that I wouldn't otherwise see uh, just because they do tend to be pretty remote. So prior to us chatting, I didn't even know there were salamanders that lived in the Pacific Northwest. So what importance do these species play in the Pacific Northwest? And like, why are you specifically studying them? Yeah. Um, You know, as a whole, uh, salamanders, you know, play a lot of different roles. They occupy a lot of different habitats. You generally have like the wetland species, the kind of prawn breeding species, um, like northwestern salamanders, um, the kind of 
larger river species like the Pacific Giants, uh, and then those kind of smaller species like torrent salamanders that are up in fishless streams. And so they play a lot of roles, but the ones that I study specifically live in fishless streams, and so they tend to be one of the dominant predators in that system. Uh, so they're you know really important for kind of controlling like macroinvertebrate populations. Uh, and headwater streams, as I mentioned, are, are really small. And so that means that the linkage between the streams and then the upland riparian forest, just the forest along the river, is a lot stronger than what you would see at maybe a larger river. Uh, so in addition to being you know just important predators, they're also important prey items for you mm -hmm. know species uh, like birds. And also, uh, shout out to Marie Tosa in my department for finding out that spotted skunks eat a lot of torrent salamanders, which is unfortunate, but we're still friends. And so, yeah, they, they're important, uh, you know, at, in kind of multiple trophic levels. Well, if people listening haven't checked out our blog yet, they are absolutely adorable. Mm -hmm. And this is the best picture I have seen all day. So thank you for gracing my screen with this. And so taken by our guest himself. Yeah, thanks. I, you know, it's funny because when I show people that from maybe kind of different areas, they always think it was like resembles like a glass frog because it has those stereotypical things that we find is like cute. Just these really big eyes, but the eyes are even kind of like popping up out of the head as opposed to be more inset. And they do tend to have this just very charismatic look. And, you know, I think with maybe the right amount of exposure, torrent salamanders could be a very charismatic symbol mm -hmm. for headwater streams and the Pacific Northwest in general, especially because they're only found here and nowhere else, which is pretty cool. And cuteness always helps for getting people on board with conservation, right? I, I mean, I love red pandas, so, you know, <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. Cool. So um, what I'm getting at, these are very kind of unique and isolated environments that salamanders live in. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they're a pretty unique species. Um, you know, these are animals that even, you know, among salamanders are desiccation intolerant, which just means they're really sensitive to getting dried out. And of mm -hmm. course, you know, salamanders as a whole need water at, at um, some, if not most stages of their life. Um, but torrent salamanders specifically like really rely on these, these uh, cold flowing waters. Uh, and then really are only like kind of active outside of the stream as terrestrial adults during periods of high moisture. Uh, so yeah, they, they're pretty unique a unique individual and then you know these things are you know not very big and so their dispersal mm -hmm. ability is very limited uh, and so that's kind of one of the things that I'm trying to get at with my research is trying to understand like how these populations are structured across the landscape uh, but I'm working specifically with one of two ESA candidate species the mm -hmm. there's two species that are currently being considered for listing under the Endangered Species Act uh, Rycotriton keyseri which is the Columbia torrent and then Rycotriton cascade which is the cascade torrent that's the species I work with, and as you can guess by the name, it lives on the western slopes of the Cascade Mountains. Hmm. Can you say more about uh, this process of being considered under the, the ESA and what that could mean for these species? Yeah, totally. Um, you know, this the the ESA you know is a is a federal listing uh, done by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and in this case. Uh, it was brought forth, I think, by a, a suit from the uh, Center for Biological Diversity. A lot of times they kind of maybe coalesce together groups of scientists that, that feel like a species could be imperiled. And then they submit a listing to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service or a listing request. And then the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service kind of reviews that. And then if they find that it's warranted, they then do their own internal process. 
and I've been like very fortunate to be able to just kind of participate very lightly in that, um, just kind of reviewing a species status assessment and, you know, seeing what the agency deems as, as threats and not. And, you know, as part of that process, they do ask for input from scientists mm-hmm. uh, from a variety of fields. So it's been a really cool experience to, to actually get to use some of my science that, you know, in a hopefully productive way, I think. So how long does the process take from like starting to get a species listed as endangered to like when it finally is? It's a good question. And I wish I had the answer, but I don't. Uh, I do know it takes years. Uh, you know, they they did this. this uh, I participated in just kind of like the review section of the SSA. And then they're going to go and take those feedbacks and then do another review. And then I think there's steps after the process as well. I think, you know, it's a it's a really big decision. And so. There's a lot of due diligence that goes into this because it can have a lot of impacts on landowners and and management activities in the area. So I think it's, you know, right. it, it takes a long time, but I think it should take a, a, long, take a long time. time. Yeah, yeah. And so when you're participating, are you are participating just as yourself as a scientist or is it somehow speaking for? U.S. Department of Fish and Oh, wildlife? no, not at no. all. Yeah, just as a scientist, you know, as a university researcher, this, this species is largely understudied, and there hasn't been a uh, range-wide, like, genetic study since uh, the 80s, uh, and that was done with Alzheimer's data. So, I mean, that's going pretty far back in terms of uh, when these studies were done. So I think there's just a dearth of information, mm-hmm. uh, and so I just happen to be someone that has that information at a good time for it, uh, essentially. Uh, but yeah. So what are the biggest threats to this species as they're being considered to be endangered? Yeah. Um, well, you know, like, like anything else, uh, climate change is unfortunately playing a big role. Um, and specifically for this species, it is predicted to impact their habitats pretty severely. And for a couple different reasons, uh, one, uh, there's going to be an increase in fires, a predicted increase in fires, both in, in terms of severity and how uh, impactful these fires are on their landscape, and also in, in terms of occurrence, just how often they're happening. Um, <clears throat> and fires can be pretty harmful. Um, you know, as you can imagine, a fire going through the stream probably isn't the greatest thing. No. Uh, but there are immediate effects, uh, and then after effects as well, where kind of, you know, you have immediate effects of increased stream temperature. Um, and then after that, you get kind of increased sedimentation. So there's a lot more sediments moving through the stream. Uh, and that can kind of drop oxygen levels as temperatures also rise uh, due to lack of canopy cover from trees getting knocked down. And similarly, that's why kind of logging is thought to also play a bit of a role in impacting the species, um, primarily due to that, that loss of canopy cover that, you know, trees shade a stream. And as uh, those trees get knocked down, the the stream raises in temperature. But there's also other things like, you know, a loss of snowpack. Uh, Like I said, these are big headwater streams. And so a difference in snowpack can affect them just by changing how much stream flow there is and spread out Mm -hmm. over the year. And a lot of models show that, you know, these streams are predicted to have larger lengths of of dryness or no water available, Um, which, of course, would you know impact the species in terms of desiccation but even just for something like development their eggs take a very long time to develop and they need that flowing water so it could potentially have impacts on their ability to breed as well interesting so do we do we know much about the the long-term trajectory of uh conservation efforts or is that kind of contingent on what we find and i know we'll get into your 
your specific slice of the research in a second. But. Yeah, sure. <clears throat> um, you know, there's there's a lot of people doing a lot of really great work right now. I think uh, Northwest Cask, which is the Northwest Climate Adaptation Science Center, um, is doing a lot of work looking at like refugia. So kind of, you know, using models to identify places where tornado salamanders are doing well now uh, and then using projected and predicted values to then kind of identify where they will be in the future. Um, so I'm looking up to one of my committee members does some of that work, uh, Dr. Lindsay Thurman. And so been able to kind of learn a bit about that, which has been great. Um, so there are people doing work there and it's, it's hard to say really what the future mm -hmm. holds, you know, if it's. If it's listed, obviously there's going to be kind of greater protections in place than if not. But the species is listed at like the state level, I think, in Washington. So there there is some active research being being done from a lot of parties. All right. So maybe let's turn to um, your involvement in it. Um, so what does it look like throughout the course of your PhD? Um, you talk more about your projects, basically. Yeah, totally. Um, so kind of the the first thing that I did as part of my PhD was working with uh, Dr. Lindsay Thurman and uh, some of the committee members, Dr. D. Olson, um, and trying to find a way uh, to detect this species using environmental DNA. And I guess I'll just kind of like briefly introduce eDNA sure. and what that is for the audience. I think it's really cool. Um, and I forget how cool it is until I explain it to people that don't do it. And they're like, well, that's really cool. But uh, so we can take water samples, uh, so just samples from the streams in which in which they live, uh, and then run them through like a very fine micron fine filter and take that filter and then ex uh, extract genetic material from it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so our project was kind of developing the molecular tools needed to be able to detect two species, the two ESA candidates, uh, Columbia and Cascade Torrent, um, using this eDNA. And so that first chapter was a lot of field work, going to these different sites, uh, trying to, you know, do physical surveys and then pair them with eDNA surveys to, you know, see if what we were finding with our molecular methods actually corresponded with what we could physically find on the ground. Um, and so far it's, it's worked pretty well. Um, I think that's taking up a good chunk of my time right now, trying to get that wrapped up. Uh, and then the second chapter is more of a population genetics approach, mm -hmm. taking uh, samples from across the range of Cascade Torrent. So that's south uh, east of Eugene, uh, kind of near Westfer, which is kind of near Oak Ridge, mm -hmm. uh, if you know where that is. And then all the way up and uh, just south of Mount Rainier. So kind of around Packwood, Randall, uh, that area. Um, and so it was, a, you know, again, a lot of driving and a lot of... Uh, Navigating uh, forest roads, which, you know, Google Maps is an option and, and wow. topo maps are no cell service unreliable often. No. And and even when you have it, it's tough. You know, driving out there is is uh, can be pretty wild and pretty hairy. I mean, there was definitely a time I remember at the Gifford Print show where I was up with someone trying to find samples following this road. And it was the only access point to a site. And it just getting just more and more sketchy as we kept going, like bigger washouts that we were driving over, uh -huh. like single lane. And finally, we got to a point where the road had just collapsed and we're like in a huge, like kind of U-shaped canyon. And uh, then I had to reverse like, I think like a mile or two, like down and to turn around. Yeah. So some some hairy stuff, but uh, but really rewarding when it works out. Yeah. You've probably seen a side of. Pacific Northwest that not a lot of people have seen. Yeah, I 
I mean, I feel super fortunate. Like, I don't know. I, I, I guess I'm just pretty grateful in general for everything, for, you know, the chance to do a PhD and then the chance to, like, do it with conservation and stuff that's really applied. But, yeah, another thing that I'm just really happy about is being able to see kind of that area. I mean, that, that wasn't a part of the Gifford Pin show that, like, I, I doubt many people have been. Um, even getting to see some stuff in the Columbia River Gorge, which is my favorite part of Oregon where I fell in love with, like, amphibians and the gorge in general. But, um, but even parts back in there, which are a pretty deep hike in and I think are off the beaten path. So, yeah, that's been a, a real kind of plus uh, to my research. And it's definitely left me, I think, with – um, kind of a just awe at how varied a lot yeah. of these habitats can be, which is pretty cool. So how much of your work split is being in a lab versus being out in the field? Yeah. Um, well, it tends to be field heavy on the front end, uh, and that's when I'm you know collecting samples and doing that. Uh, and then on the back end, it tends to be pretty heavy lab work. Um, and it just kind of depends, I think, for the first chapter of the eDNA work, um, it's probably equal-ish time spent in the field versus in the lab. Uh, I think on this second part, um, that's population genetics, it's going to actually be a, a lot more, uh, not even necessarily in the lab, but just in the bioinformatics part of it. So trying to make sense of all of these huge sequences and and figure that out. So, yeah, I think as, as I get deeper into my PhD, the field time gets less, but in a way the projects get more rewarding, which is cool. That's very cool that you get to see it through to the end of like starting from the field work into the wet lab and then even the computational stuff. Yeah, it's it's certainly uh, like a gift. I'm I'm very excited about it because I do you know especially I hadn't realized like how big you know of a deal that was until I talked to other people like agency folk or just people that are you know kind of jumping into projects and it's pretty common for people to get like handed data sets and and do something with it and to to have like kind of that personal experience like the whole way through has made it really rewarding. I think like, you know, when I do these like genetic analyses, like the number that I see for the site isn't just a number and it isn't just like a discrete population. Like I remember that stream mm -hmm. and I remember what mm -hmm. it looked like and I remember where it was. And it's really cool to be able to like see stuff and then think back to, you know, what I saw and like how that, the, the road from one site to another and how like that could impact like dispersal, you know, it just gives you, I think like a, a different understanding. So is, is that what you meant by physical survey then? Like your observations about a particular stream or whether you <clears throat> saw a salamander there or stuff like that? Yeah. On the, I guess I should, yeah, yeah. Explain a little more on that first chapter when we're doing the eDNA work, you know, we would do eDNA surveys again, just collecting water. And then most of the, the survey, the finding, so to speak, is done in the lab. Um, but, you know, we wanted to know if like the detection probability would be different depending on stream characteristics. And so when we went to these sites, you know, we'd spend an hour looking for salamanders um, combined at the site, you know, doing physical work, like lifting up rocks and stuff. But we would also record habitat uh, characteristics, like, you know, what percent of the stream is bedrock versus large gravel versus small gravel, you know, um, and things like that uh, in order to maybe hope to be able to get at what makes detection uh, probability mm -hmm. different from one stream to the next. So do you have a specific stream that has your favorite salamanders at or <laughs> are all salamanders equal? <laughs> um, that's a good question. It's hard to say. I actually, yeah, I think there's one stream that was uh, 
very hard to get to, and so it felt very rewarding when I got there. So that was kind of a favorite one. And the salamanders were like a, a lot of large adults. Um, you know, one of the things I have to think about if I'm collecting samples for uh, genetics is I get worried that I'm going to collect like siblings or parent mm -hmm. offsprings, you know, uh, and then you'd have to throw them out because you can't have, you know, like genetically related individuals and in in, like, throw off your analysis. Um, and so when I go to places that just has like a lot of big adults, I'm like, well, I feel like the odds that these are <laughs> related a family. is pretty low. <laughs> no, well, I mean, if it's like, I don't think they're going to be like related, you know, um, okay. but maybe that's just me. Yeah. And the, there is like morphological like variation across the range. So like some look different than the other. Um, but I think it's more of just like how cool the habitat was that I remember <laughs> one stream from the next, you know? Yeah. So, um, what's, what's the difference between that eDNA chapter and the population genetics that you're now moving into maybe? Yeah, the eDNA is really focused at, you know, can managers use this tool to detect salamanders in the in the stream? Which, if they do become ESA candidate species, there's going to be a lot of more monitoring that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. um, and I think uh, that has just kind of different questions and different goals. And like one of the goals being, you know, torrent salamander sampling has, I think, historically been somewhat of an invasive sampling method. Mm -hmm. So where you go in and, and you really have to kind of like start flipping rocks and stuff. And it's not as destructive now, I think, as it was back in like the 80s. You'll read some of the methods and they're like, we just went through and tore the stream apart. And it's like, that's cool. But, you know, after you leave, <laughs> did they come back? And there's some evidence that like that kind of physical sampling actually impacted mm. uh, suitability down, down the years. So providing managers with a uh, survey method where you just take a sample of water and you leave the stream undisturbed is a pretty cool uh, thing to do. Um, Whereas the second chapter is is much more focused on kind of answering the question of like where are there genetically distinct uh, populations on the landscape and and the reason why that's important is because you would want to for conservation or for management manage those populations separately you know if you're seeing evidence of this this strong uh, structure this strong differentiation between one population to the next uh, you know without doing like functional functional genomics or something like that, you can still kind of surmise that there's likely some kind of um, localized adaptation. You know, maybe conditions are different for this population than for that, and so that's why they've evolved to deal with those habitat characteristics differently. Um, and especially as, like, we need to start identifying kind of places where the species will persist on the landscape in order to just prioritize, you know, funding. I mean, you can't save everything, but mm -hmm. you want to try and save the most important spots kind of finding these pockets of like high genetic diversity is really important for that uh, because it gives you a metric with which you can say, you know, this area has seems to have a much healthier population than perhaps this area or, you know, uh, this area, uh, because it has higher genetic diversity, possibly has higher capacity for resilience. Um, you know, I think there, there's a ton of studies that show that genetic diversity is linked to like resilience mm -hmm. and disease um, mitigation and stuff like that. So, I think, yeah, they're answering like two, kind of two fundamentally different questions. Sure. And then in terms of what you're doing in the field, the eDNA is is just from the water samples, right? And then the the population genetics is from individual salamanders themselves? Yeah, that's, yes, that's true. So the eDNA is just done from the water samples and from the filters. 
and the population genetics is done taking like tail tips from salamanders. Um, we actually did like a pretty, uh, I'd say, comprehensive literature review to try and find out the best way to do that ethically, working with uh, IACUC, which is the Institute for Animal Care and Use something <laughs> center uh, at OSU, and, and had back and forth trying to figure out like what was the right length to take, um, what's the best way to take the tail tip, um, and, you know, worked on finding kind of a, a monitoring uh, piece of that as well to make sure that anything we took tissues from was fine and to be released. And having done all of the sampling, I mean, with other people, but having been present for all of it, I can say that all of the salamanders survived and went back to their respective right. hiding places. <laughs> so it was good. And the tails grow back, right? How hard is it to, like, catch a salamander? Because I feel like they're kind of squirmy. Yeah, and that's where um, the habitat really plays a, a key role. Because, you know, I spend a lot of my free time just out looking for stuff anyways. And, you know, when you're in those deeper streams, trying to catch something is very difficult as they disappear quickly. But in these small streams, they don't have that many places to go. And they're kind of small. Uh, so it's not, not as hard as you might think, though there have been many frustrating occasions where you try to catch one and it just goes down what looks like under a rock and then you lift that rock and it turns out it's just this huge network of rocks and you're never going to find them. But, uh, yeah, it's, 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 they tend to kind of like not move that fast. <laughs> so it's kind of nice. If you're just tuning in, um, this is inspiration dissemination on KBVR 88.7. Um, and we have been talking with Chris cousins about, Torrent salamanders. So, um, the what kind of remains uh, in what you want to accomplish in your PhD? Yeah. Um, well, we have a kind of upcoming study uh, that we're going to do with the H.J. Andrews, uh, which is an experimental, like long-term research site. Uh, one of the founding of that LTER network, which is nationwide. Uh, it's on the McKinsey River, um, and that. That forest has decades of data at very fine scales, um, looking at water temperature and, and uh, timber harvest. And I mean, they can they the papers that come from there are truly astounding in their ability to really ask fine scale questions. And so we wanted to to use that and to ask kind of different questions um, about the genetics of, of torrent salamanders. And, th and that is kind of what features on a landscape be that kind of biotic. So you know, um, like, uh, you know, water temperature and stuff like that, or maybe from management, like past timber harvest, how, what kind of features in the landscape act as facilitators to gene flow? So like areas where, um, you know, torrent salamanders are going to move across the landscape from one breeding population to another, and then what acts as a, a barrier and, and prevents that gene flow from happening. Um, so we're going to do a similar study to what we did range wide, um, but do it at a much finer scale in order to kind of ask different questions of, you know, within this watershed, within this uh, forest, you know, what are the habitat features that seem to uh, really, you know, help or hinder uh, dispersal across the landscape long term. And so just going more in detail in the same way that you did across the Cascades in a more in more constrained location. Yeah, I think you know with uh, with different kind of 
spatial extents of your research, you can ask different questions. You know, for a population genetics thing, you can ask a lot of questions about even uh, variables that are present on larger scales, like climate and temperature and elevation. But to get at things like stream temperature on a within a stream or ground flow of, of water moving subsurface within a stream or really fine scale localized temperature covariates that aren't at like this 30 meter wide, you know, like raster data, you can, you can really get much more at like the fine scale of what on a landscape helps impact gene flow. And I guess the, the reason why that would be important is, you know, for the, for the broad scale questions, those are still very important in, in trying to understand like across the entire range, you know, what do you, what patterns are you seeing? But, you know, for like a manager, they can't impact say precipitation or something like mm -hmm. that. Uh, but knowing on a very fine scale, you know, what about this type of timber harvest and this long after timber harvest and this kind of road um, and temperatures at, at this scale versus that, it gives people much more of an ability to kind of maybe predict where they are uh, either to like kind of hone survey efforts or to really focus conservation action on protecting those corridors that are important for movement and then long-term persistence of the species. All right, so how did you become interested in salamanders, in fisheries and wildlife? Um, I think you went to Oregon State as an undergrad, right? Yeah, I mean, I've always <laughs> like really liked animals and, and really liked amphibians, uh, you know, and I just didn't know this was like a career for the longest time. Uh, I grew up in Japan mostly uh, as a kid. And so like my childhood was, was very much spent uh, running around outside, like looking in, in uh, the rice paddy right next to my house at one spot or different parts of the forest. And uh, so I really grew up kind of being surrounded by nature and always being curious about it. And like I distinctly remember being like eight or nine years old and like pulling all of the frogs out of the tide pool next to my house and then <laughs> taking all of the measurements and trying to find out like, what was the biggest one and what was the smallest one and all this stuff. Uh, and it's, it's something that I always wanted to do, but I didn't know, like I, I never had any, I guess like role model or, or even just figure that was a wildlife biologist in my life. You know, like I said, I grew up in military bases and so uh, that was like the culture I was exposed to. And, uh, you know, I didn't move back to the States until after high school. Uh, I lived in Iceland too, though. That was, hmm. um, any amphibians there, a lot less wildlife in general. <laughs> I saw Arctic Fox once, which was cool, but the zoo had sheep. So I think that tells you all yeah. you need to know. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it was, it, it wasn't something that I really thought was possible. And so, uh, I just knew that I really wanted to do something outdoors. Like I did, you know, sales for a long time and I made money like more than I'll probably make as a postdoc. But, um, I was like really unhappy. Like I didn't feel satisfied. I felt like my life didn't really have meaning. I was just kind of making other people money. And so I decided to go back to community college and I went to Lane community college in Eugene and mm -hmm. they had a watershed science technician, like certificate at the time. And I was like, well, I'll just do this like, you know, two year certificate and I'll get like a tech job and, and I'll be happy, you know. And then I did that and it was fun. And then the people there were like, you know, you should really do like a bachelor's. Like you seem like you really like this. And I was like, OK, sure. And I did the dual enrollment program and then did Lane and OSU and, and got a bachelor's. And while I was doing the bachelor's and like 
getting involved in uh, working for a lab and doing some undergraduate research and stuff. Um, some of the profs were like, you know, like you would probably do really well in grad school and, and you would enjoy it and it sounded really cool. Um, so I kind of jumped on it, uh, though it was, you know, uh, like none of my American family has ever been in grad school. And I mean, growing up, I mean, my dad didn't have a college degree until after I graduated because um, military guy uh, enlisted. And so it, you know, it wasn't like a, a thing and it still feels weird being here in many ways, <laughs> but uh, I really like it, <laughs> you know. That's great. So there were these people around you that saw potential and encouraged you to keep going at each at each step. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, I've had like the really good fortune to have a lot of really like positive and uh, just like great people as mentors around me. Um, you know, as an undergrad, I uh, needed work. So I found a work study position in uh, the Levy Lab um, doing carnivore like scat work so like the the whole thing was like you would like take these like wolf scat and then you'd pick them apart and you try to identify the prey species based on like the hair that was in it mm-hmm. which like if that doesn't sound hard it is you know <laughs> it, it does sound hard <laughs> it was very difficult it was i mean it was like we would take these hairs and put them in like nail polish like clear nail polish and then pull them back and then the patterns that the scale would leave we would look under a microscope so it's very thing and it, but it was fun for me uh so i just kind of stayed there and and uh, the lab head, like Jen Allen, like kind of took me under her wing and started showing me some more genetics techniques. And those are the techniques that I essentially, essentially got me to, uh, be competent enough to get that kind of first chapter position of doing eDNA stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean like, you know, another undergraduate research thing was with, uh, Dr. Jenny Urbina. Uh, she was another great role model, like the first scientific publication that I was a co-author on, I did with her. Um, I just, yeah, I've been surrounded by, uh, a lot of really great people that like I, yeah, it's cool that I found them now. And, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's wild when I think about it a little bit of like, what, yeah. So you mentioned obviously going down the traditional postdoc route, but if you could in the future have any job or like make your own job, what would you do? Yeah. Um, I really like doing research. I think it's really cool. Um, it's like, I don't know, like the, the feeling of like, you know, being able to like kind of ask this question and then collect this data and then do this analysis and kind of get more insight about a system is, is really, really cool. And I want to continue doing that forever. Hopefully. Um, I don't know if <laughs> academia is the right way for me. I don't, I don't know if I'll ever, truly feel comfortable here I maybe that's wrong but I think if I could like pick anything it would be kind of like a co-op position (laughs) where you work with both where you work with the agency but then you kind of have an office and Mm. position at a university and so because I do think it would be cool to kind of help other people who maybe like didn't have experience get more experience in the field Um, but I just want to like keep doing research a lot (laughs) so kind of a have a foot in both worlds of government and research. Yeah. I mean, it's hard for me to choose, you know, anything in life. It's hard for me to choose like what flavor of boba tea I want. And so (laughs) that certainly would be like the best compromise, you know? Sounds great. Well, 
Um, we're kind of coming to the end of our interview. Um, and we, do you have any other questions? Jenna? No. Um, so we always kind of close with a couple uh, traditions on the show. Um, one of which is we always ask you, like, what is your favorite? Or we always ask the guests, what is their favorite thing about your research? Yeah, I think, I mean, my favorite thing about my research is is just how, like, incredibly fulfilling it is. Um, and it, like, it has, like, a lot of meaning for me, I think. Um, not just scientifically, but, like, personally. I spent a lot of time in the gorge. And, um, you know, at, at times in my life when maybe I didn't, like, couldn't find peace like I always found peace in nature and I always found peace in these streams and to be able to like give back in some way is like really meaningful for me so I like that a lot that's really powerful that you've been able to find a place in your job where you can contribute and yeah it sounds like quite the sweet gig of getting to explore getting to um, really help out with an organism that is in danger. Yeah, it's it's a great opportunity. I'm pretty stoked for it. And honestly, like, couldn't be happier as for right now, you know? That's awesome. Yeah. And really getting to see it all the way through the end, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, our second tradition is if you had any advice, whether it be your younger self, undergraduates, fellow grad students, anyone at all, what advice would it be? You know, I think for undergraduates that, like, want to get, like, job experience or maybe research experience, like it can be really easy to be like focused on the taxa that you really want to work with. Like, you know, like, oh, I want to be a bird person. So like, I'm only going to do this like bird stuff or bird related jobs or, or lab experience. And I would just like encourage you to like kind of think beyond that and, and try stuff to see what you like and what you didn't like. I did like an internship working with fish and I don't ever want to work with fish, you know? And like, I have the a small mammal job on the coast. And I think if I couldn't work with salamanders, like I would work with weasels. Like they're really cool. Wow. Uh, I like s slender and long animals, I think is maybe what I'm getting at. But yeah. There's I, a connection. Yeah. Just try different things, you know, and, and, and try. You never know like what a door will take you to, you know, like this undergrad position doing um, hair work with Levy Lab, like. You know, I wouldn't be in grad school if it wasn't for that. And there's no way for me to know that looking forward, you know. So I think just just be open to new experiences and, and try to get as much experience as you can. Perfect. So our final tradition that we have um, is we allow you to pick your outro song. Um, you want to tell us a bit about why you chose Taylor Swift, Antihero? Yeah. Well, it turns out that I think maybe most of my music <laughs> has profanity, so my choices were limited. <laughs> I actually didn't know that until I started reading lyrics, and I was like, oh, I can't. Oh, no, I can't. <laughs> uh, but I am also a big Taylor Swift fan, uh, and I like Antihero a lot because I feel like, I don't know, um, oftentimes like I am like my biggest enemy, and so it's always like, I don't know. But, but that gets exhausting too, you know? And like maybe sometimes it's okay to just like enjoy your work and not be so self-critical. So that's why I like it. Well, Chris, it's been great for, to have you. Um, we've enjoyed the inspiration. And with that, we say good evening from Inspiration Dissemination.
prices and vices I end up in crisis I wake up screaming from dreaming One day I'll watch as you're leaving Cause you got tired of my scheming Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamat. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening, and stay curious, my friends.